This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. You don't like the Drake. I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. Do you like the Drake? I love the Drake. What about the Drake? Oh, screw the Drake. I love the Drake. This is Cam Bowen, voice of Tim Drake on Young Justice, and you're listening to Everyone Loves the Drake. Hi, this is James Tynan IV, and I love the Drake. This is George Perez at Cincinnati Comic Expo, and everybody likes the Drake, especially the cakes. Hi, this is Mark Wolfman, and everyone loves the Drake. Hi, this is Marcus Toe, artist for Red Robin. You've been listening to Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake podcast. Good for them. Love the Drake. Got to love the Drake. I'm impressed. What can I say? I'm irresistible. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Robin. Everyone loves the Drake comic podcast. I'm your host, Rob Myers. Welcome to episode 117. And this is part of our Robin 80th anniversary episodes. The show is brought to you by the BatmanUniverse.net, your home for all things Batman. And of course, the boy wonder who is celebrating 80 years now. Wow, it's crazy. Uh, we're a part of the Batman Universe podcast network. We are also part of Batman on Films podcast network at BatmanPodcastNetwork.com. And we also have a new blog spot page that I'm titling the ELTD network. So you can find us at everyone loves the Drake.blogspot.com. You can get a hold of us on Facebook at facebook.com slash everyone loves the Drake. We are on Twitter at ELTD podcast. You can find us on Instagram and you can email into the show at Robin ELTD podcast at yahoo.com. So like I said, this is part of our 80th anniversary special. So Ryan and Terrence think I'm totally crazy opening the door to any kind of Robin that's out there. And, you know, continuity wise, we think there's only three or four primary Robins, but we've got two different Earth 2 Robins and a whole plethora of Robins. And of course, I'm sure people are going to be leaning towards the Drake because, you know, why wouldn't you? As is for our special guest here from the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, I'm very happy to welcome first-time guest, Mr. Sean Ross. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me. I'm excited uh, excited to be part of the 80th anniversary of potentially my favorite character, at least top two. (laughs) Cool. And uh, I think we've been kind of playing tag through the podcast sphere of like (laughs) sending, you know random messages back and forth to each other. I think we had even talked and maybe I'm just getting all my wires crossed here about trying to do something at some point somewhere, but it actually took a pandemic for, (laughs) for this to happen. And then, 
because of Shag, who, if you don't know who Shag is, just go check out his whole plethora of shows in the Fire and Water podcast, but put together this really cool, like, Zoom meeting, if you will, for those of us that are in this like kind of like podcasters feed through you know, Facebook Messenger. And it was just kind of a private thing for all of us to uh, just to talk and hang out and have a chance to have some, you know, human interaction. And uh, <laughs> I'd kind of said in my little blurb, like, you know, hey, I'm kind of reaching out to people for this uh, 80th anniversary. And you, you know, piped up very quickly. So while we were having this talk. You and I were having our own private little chat <laughs> off to the side of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this, do this. So uh, one of the first questions I want to ask you is like your – where's your Robin entry point? You know, like, well, so we'll, we'll start there and like then maybe second question is who who is your favorite Robin? No, it's a good question. Yeah, the, the, that Shag meetup was great and, and I had – you and I had you know talked briefly in Twitter before. But that – your invitation where you're like, oh, I'm looking for guests – triggered the storm the gates reaction in me <laughs> and i you're right i literally didn't wait for you to stop talking to, before i started private messaging you like hey hey do you say reach out hey i'm reaching out <laughs> so I i've got my pitchfork where's the fire <laughs> <laughs> so i appreciate you being receptive and and not being turned off at all by my completely psychopathic response to no you know, and it, it, it took a minute and i was like oh, i thought i might get a bite and all of a sudden it was like oh there's somebody you know <laughs> <laughs> so i i have a a long-standing relationship with Robin, like most of us. You know, I first discovered him in the Batman 66 TV show reruns back when, you know, I was young. There were only six channels, so any right, show that yep. ever existed was on rerun at some point. And, you know, and Dick Ward was great, and I loved Batman and Robin. In the comics, though, I started collecting comics in, like, 1982, so I'm really old. And Jason Todd had literally just come on the scene. In fact... Oh, nice. Yeah, one of my first issues of... It's either Batman or Detective. I think it's Detective. Is the Crazy Quilt issue. It's Jason's first sort of adventure in the Robin costume. And he gets, I and he gets, dig that issue a lot. I do, too. <laughs> and, and especially in retrospect, because of what Jason would sort of become, mm -hmm. every once in a while, I just liked to flash back to him getting beat up by Crazy Quilt, <laughs> you know, and it just warmed my heart. Yeah. Now he's a very different character today, but you know, over the years. And so Jason was my first Robin, and you know, in, in those early days, those pre-crisis days, Doug Munch was writing, and he was, you know, I think Tom Mandrake was the penciler, and it was a very noir fit, you know, uh, and Gene Colan as well. There was a very noir feel to Detective and Batman. I really dug it. I was really young. I was like seven, six or seven. But I really liked it. I, I was hooked. It was one of the first books I collected regularly, as as regularly as you can on the spinner rack. Mm -hmm. And then, then Jason was just a Dick Grayson clone. Now, I didn't know that. I, I was collecting Titans, and so I knew who Dick Grayson was. And I didn't really see the connections, though, because like I said, I was really young. And then Crisis hit, and Jason stole the hubcaps off the Batmobile and you know, <laughs> just became a completely different character, and they drove him into the ground. I will tell you, I did call the one eight hundred number. I did Ooh. vote to kill him. <laughs> I have, I have yet to uh, meet somebody that's actually done that. So, oh yeah, yeah. I I look <laughs> back at that moment. It's pretty formative because I'm a teacher. I'm kind of a peaceful dude, and I'm like, well, oh, I once voted to kill a guy. <laughs> like I once, I once participated in public ex execution. I'm I'm not a great person. So you so anyway, literally, you literally had your pitchfork with fire oh, and were like that one. I did, I did. And had I known you know, I knew my mom like monitored our phone bill because I had oh two teenage gosh. sisters. And if I hadn't known that she was gonna monitor it really closely, I would have called I would have called a number of times. So so yeah, so so there so I met Jason first 
And I, you know, didn't like him. Starlin made sure in his run that no one could like him. Right. So when Tim came along, when Tim Drake came along, it was such a breath of fresh air. It was so needed. There was such a, there was like a lid on the bat books at that time. And Tim coming in just pulled it off and let the, let the books breathe again. And so he was the Batman or the Robin, like for many people that I grew up with, you know, that I really, I got to know, even though I, I knew Jason almost from day one. I got to know Tim from day one and watched that whole process. So, so I came in with Jason, but then watched you know Tim grow up over the years. See, my relationship with Jason is out of the digest ten or the the year's best Batman stories. Oh yeah, and uh, it's the down below issue that's in here. And I was always one that was flipping through comics. If I saw a yellow cape, I I wanted to buy it. So I had no idea what this little tiny you know, digest book was, but it, the only Robin story was in here was that one. And Bruce keeps referring to Robin as Jay. I'm like, well, that's really weird that he's calling Dick Jay. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, maybe he met Jay bird. So, you know, I was really young and naive. So like mine was Dick Grayson from the superpowers and the seventies cartoon. Uh, was it the new adventures of Batman? So that whole thing. So I really didn't realize who Jason was till I was in high school. Um, and watching somebody in art class draw the death of Jason Todd. And I was like, oh, oh. What's, what's that? And he said, oh, it's when they kill Robin. And I was like, oh, my gosh, they killed Dick Grayson? He's like, no, Jason Todd. I was like, oh, who? So I, did, <laughs> I didn't put those, those two together. So I quickly started reading right around. I think I went out to like a B. Dalton's, if you remember those. Oh, yeah. And bought the trade for A Death in the Family and read that. So then I was like, so you mean to tell me there's no Robin anymore so that was just a a really weird time of you know i felt like i blinked and all of a sudden everything i knew was gone (laughs) so another question i like to ask for this is it's really easy for somebody to say well the importance of batman is because but i don't think a lot of people land on like why you know i always say lonely place of dying is is the reason why batman needs a robin and all that but what is the importance of robin to batman i know you can have solo batman stories but is is there a need for Robin today? Does he still have importance? I think there is. I, I do think the need for Robin has been lost a little bit from when Jason and Tim and, and you know Dick Grayson first came on the scene. So I, I would say you know the need for Batman is that that example of turning tragedy to purpose. You know that taking like something that could have set somebody on a very dark path and instead trying to turn it to something more productive. Mm-hmm. And Robin for me is similar in that it's, it's taking tragedy and refusing to let it define you like, like searching for joy. And that for me is the difference between the two characters where Batman took tragedy and turned it, honed it to purpose. There's just not a joy in what he does. Mm-hmm. And Robin for me, at least, you know, Dick and, and Tim took tragedy and said, you know, no, I'm going to, I'm going to make this about, more. I'm going to live a, a fuller, richer life, and and I'm not going to let this define me. Except in my, you know, I was strong enough to overcome this, and you know, Bruce never overcomes it. I think Robin does, mm-hmm. and so for me, the the purpose of Robin is evolution. It's to show if Batman is the starting point, if he's like the the progenitor of you know re- responding to tragedy in this universe. Robin's the evolution. Robin is the no the the healthy next step is to build a family 
enjoy a family and not wait for the other shoe to drop every minute. So, and I think, I think writers have done a good job of showing that at times. I think we lose it a little bit with Jason, you know, when he comes back as Red Hood and, and with Damien, we, we really lose it a bit. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, you know, that character has its, his moments, but he's definitely not a character I would ever call joyous. But Tim and Dick, for me, who are, you know, really, they, they epitomize Robin, it is about more. It's about really overcoming tragedy and refusing to deny yourself a rich, full life. So, so I think Robin is really important. And I, I do wish there was a little bit more of that, in, you know, injected back into the Bat books. Even though I love the Bat books, I'm not, a, I'm not, you know, it's funny. I've been on a lot of podcasts with people, or, you know, men of a certain age, people around my age, right. who are like, "Well, new comics don't." And I'm like, "No, no, no. I love new comics, man. I'm, a, I'm all in on what's coming out every week. So yeah. I still, you know, there's beauty and greatness in what's coming out. We're in a golden age of comics. I just miss that little element. Yeah, and I think that's one of those. Even during the New Fifty Two, when they it's even funny to say that there was never a Batman and Robin in comic book specifically until the new 52. And that was, you know, Bruce and Damien. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think that's, that's an element that's missing. Like you've got, you know, what King was doing in rebirth and then now tying it in the Batman title and you have Tomasi doing his thing. But I think there's still another element, a, a proper Batman and Robin and a book that I would, I would love DC if you're listening was a Batman and the Robins book. Oh yeah. Have have a book that's Batman teaming up with one of the Robins, be it a flashback story of one of them as Robin or here's a Batman and Nightwing adventure. Then next month or whatever, next arc you have a a Batman and Red Robin or Batman and the Drake issue. Something where it's a Batman and Robin themed book. I think that element it's it's great when you have this big bat family adventure and they're all running around, but I think the idea, if you talk to the average person, you do that association name game, if you say Batman, the next person's response is probably going to be Robin nine times out of ten. Oh, yeah. I mean, and you see it in in multiple parts of life. I mean, I'm watching The Last Dance on ESPN about the 1997-1988 Chicago Bulls, Mm. and they keep calling Scottie Pippen, you know, he's Robin to Jordan's Batman. Right. And I'm like, which Robin is he? And I'm probably the only person <laughs> watching that show trying to narrow down which Robin Scotty Pippen is. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's it's true. It's a, it's it's needed. I would love that. And you know what? I, I would love that too because some of my favorite interactions are with Dick and a Robin. You know, like like I think yeah. when in his role as sort of older brother. Like I don't remember who said it. It was somebody, maybe Dick Giordano from DC Comics, but somebody once said Dick Grayson is the ultimate older brother, right? Like, that's the appeal of him as a character. Yeah. And I love when he interacts with Tim. I love his kind of repartee with Jason because they're a little closer, you know, in age. And then I, he's actually the only time I've really loved Damien as a character is when he was Robin to Dick's Batman. So I'd love to see that, you know, in a, in a Robin's book as well, where you can, you, like you said, you can sort of mix and match. And that would be really, that'd be amazing. Yeah. So that's my new job. I'm going to be working for DC once this is <laughs> There you go. <laughs> but, uh, Sean, what did you pick for us to read today and why? So my selection was Robin Annual number 6, which was the – it was during DC's Pulp Heroes series of annuals. And I chose it. It's from 1997. All of the DC annuals had sort of a pulp cover, a pulp feel. So either a you know, Western in this case – or the Nightwing annual for this year actually was more of like a pulp mystery sort of, you know, uh, Mickey Spillane kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I chose it because DC was was doing these really strange 
thematic annuals back then, and some of them hit and some of them missed. And I remember being particularly excited about this crop of them, the, this pulp idea, and the Robin annual, especially when I saw the the cover. You know, I was like, oh, okay, I'm not really into westerns. I don't know about this. And then when I read the annual, I thought, well, this is just a perfect Tim Drake story. Like, I really, mm-hmm. this epitomizes Tim Drake for me, and I really loved that. So I thought this would be a great choice to, especially on the 80th anniversary, if somebody who weren't familiar with Tim Drake were looking for like a one issue nice story that, that kind of sets who he is as a character, this would be a good way to go. And this is a meaty story clocking in at like 64 pages. At least that's what Mike's Amazing World is is telling me. And reread it again uh, today right before we recorded just to freshen up on it again. And if it's 64 pages, it's the fastest 64 pages yeah. that I've read. And I've had this for a very long time. And I was... Ryan always kind of boos me when I say this. For some stupid reason, I wasn't ever wanting to read anything that was out of continuity. So I was one of those people that did not read The Dark Knight Returns in its entirety up until two years ago. Oh, wow. Just because like it had been any Batman book or any time you see an interview or anything, people were always talking about it. So after a while, I thought that was a story I had just absorbed by comic osmosis for so long that I've like, I'm going to read the story that I pretty much know all of it anyway, but some of the annuals, not even during this time, but just throughout DC, you may get an annual that's, you know, what if Batman was a pirate? What if Robin was a, <laughs> a robot? And I'm like, I don't really need to read this. You know, it's not in continuity, but I was not reading things that turned out that some of these were actually really good stories mm-hmm. that I was, you know, negating myself from, you know, having the pleasure of reading. So I bought this just because being the Robin purist and thought, well, I got all the annuals and I filed it away. And I thought the same thing that you did. I thought, even though Chuck Dixon was writing it, I'm like, I don't, I don't need to read Robin being, you know, his version of Clint Eastwood or Marty McFly or, you know, (laughs) whatever that is. So I chucked it in a box and never read it until uh, you said it. So even when I opened up the first initial page, I was like, what's really kind of weird that he's wearing his Robin costume? Like, oh, that's just to let us know that this is this is Robin. And I continue reading, continue reading, and I was like, this is really good. Look at how many years I've let go by, so I've kind of spoiled what I've already thought about it. Well, I think this is a good spot to take a quick little promo break. We'll be right back in just a few minutes. Don't go anywhere. In 1984, I was 10 years old, and a strange light lit up the park behind my house. In the middle of the night, still in my pajamas, I ran to investigate. A strange machine sat brooding in the dark. I stepped inside, and I was taken to a far-off galaxy where I saw men, monsters, and gods fight and die. Join us again on the Marvel Superhero Secret Wars and Beyond series, part of the Pulp to Pixel podcasts, where we will discuss each issue of the Secret Wars miniseries and their long-term impact on the characters who joined us on Battleworld and on those we left behind on the home front. Join us again on Battleworld. Return with us to our Secret Wars.
got an old coat for a pillow in the earth was last night's bed. I don't know where I'm going. Only God knows where I've been. I'm a devil on the run, a six-gun lover, a gamble in the wind. For the synopsis of Robin Annual Number Six, brought to us by Mike's Amazing World, cover date 1997, on sale date June 4th, 1997. Cover price was a whopping three dollars and ninety-five cents, with the page count being 64. The editor is the late Dennis J. O'Neill. The title, The Law West of Gotham. The writer is Chuck Dixon. The artist is Eduardo Barreto. The letter, Albert Tobias D. Gunsman. The colorist is Lee Longenridge. The cover credits go to Lauren Bleachum. And now, The Law West of Gotham, Part 1, Swift Guns, Swift Justice. In a scene right off a of Saturday morning western, cue the good and the bad of the ugly theme, and while you're at it, throw in a couple tumbleweeds our direction. This tale ends as many often do in these parts. A man with something to prove stands at the end of the side of the road with his hands to his hip, waiting. On the other side of the road is a man with nothing to lose. He's walking out off into the sunset as a free man or going out in a blaze of glory. So here we are in our story. Our outlaws are the trigger triplets. They stand on one side of the little saloon town with their biker gang behind them, ready to draw their guns. On the opposite side of the road is a man dressed in red, green, yellow, and black, wearing a domino mask and a poncho. Whoa, wait, that's a kid. Uh, wait, that's that's Robin and the Huntress, Shotgun Smith. Okay, we we better start this at the beginning. On a dusty two-lane side of the road in West Texas, a long black car pulls up next to some officers. They're watching a chain gang work off some of their prison time in the hot sun. When a tall, buxom, blonde, masked woman in a tight blue dress is holding two twin revolvers aimed at the officers. She puts one of the revolvers in the back of one of the officers and says that she's here to pick up two of their prisoners. Before they can say something, she opens fires and shoots the rifles out of all the lawmen's hands and asks for Tad and Tom Trigger to move to where she stands. The two puzzle men oblige the woman and hop back in her long black convertible and drive off into the sunset. Tom wastes no time and slides his hand on the little lady's bare leg as she's driving and says, 
we could be right friendly. She tells Tom that might not be a good idea because we're family. Her name is Tanya, and she's their sister. Dang, the boys say. They are now triplets, but this ain't a family reunion. Nah, this is business. In the plains of Texas, a lone man rides his horse along the desert terrain, searching. He's a Native American named Pow Wow. He spots something in the dirt and hops off his steed. As he's examining the dirt, a masked cowboy, an Air Jordans probably. Yeah, those are Air Jordans. Anyway, approaches a man from behind. The startled man spins around and draws his gun. It's the vigilante Nighthawk. Nighthawk asks Powell what he's doing in these parts of Texas. Powell corrects him and says, It's U.S. Marshal Smith now. He asks Nighthawk if he's still a bounty hunter. Nighthawk replies, As long as there's some bail jumpers out there, Nighthawk is your man. But what brings him to these parts? Powell says there's tire tracks. Two men hop off their horses and find these tire tracks a few miles up the road. Smith says they came off from the interstate a few miles back in a 78 Cadillac El Dorado, Oklahoma license plate stolen from Tulsa. Nighthawk says you got that from the signs in the dirt? The U.S. Marshal chuckles and says, Nah, I got that off the report. The two men head in the direction of the tire tracks. The two men find the abandoned car somewhere down the road, and they see that the dirt has been disturbed like a mighty wind. It's landed by one of them their helicopters, and they've taken off from the air. Nighthawk thinks that they might have gone to Mexico, since they're pretty close to the border. Smith says now they think these men have gone somewhere else, somewhere where the action is hot and the lights are bright, and the cash is piled mighty heaps high, someplace called Gotham City. On top of one of the buildings in Gotham City, the trigger triplets now are dressed in their finest western duds, especially Tanya herself, a bit of eye candy if you know what I mean to help with the distraction later on. Plus, there's no Batman in sight as far as they can tell, and now they can get down to business. Tanya tells Tad Tom that she's got the whole plan mapped out. She tells them to come along. She wants to introduce them to the rest of the gang. Tad and Tom look puzzled. They normally work together as a duo, or now as a trio. On the outskirts of Gotham City, they hear what sounds like the sound of mighty rush and thunder. Tanya says it's a biker gang called the Banditos, and you'll love them. Tad says, now, nah, they're violent, crude, rude, and stupid. Why the heck do they need the two of them if they got this kind of backup? She says that she needs the two of them to watch her back with these crankheads. They're about as trustworthy as a congressman or a strip club. Tanya explains to the newly formed group that this is what they're after, a silicon chip and the future of the new era of Gotham that could be worth a lot to the right buyer. She knows where there's millions of them. Tanya's in control of the plan because she's planning this one better than her two brothers did the last time they tried to rob a money train and the Batman got a hold of them. The leader of the biker gang opens up the back of one of the trailers attached to one of the motorcycles, and it's loaded with a bunch of TNT. Tad and Tom are shocked by this. Tanya says, we're going to use this to get the city's attention, boys. And by the time they realize what's happened, we're going to be on the other side of the Caribbean. Part 2. Leather Hands. Fill your hands or raise them, hombres, the trigger triplets say as they arrive at Gotham Tech's company, Panotech. Tanya kills one of the security guards, and Tad and Tom disable the security cameras with some quick root-toot-and-shooting cowboy action. They take one of the security guards as hostage and demand they take them to the engraving lab where the microchips are made. Meanwhile, inside one of the security rooms, an officer was able to make a phone call to the GCPD before the feed was cut. 
Tyne reminds Tad and Tom that there are going to be no posse coming for them when they're done. The banditos are already taking care of a few of the distractions. The banditos rigged one of the major overpasses in Gotham City with all the TNT they had had, as the speedy subway bridge is full of traffic at rush hour. And now it's full of TNT. In another part of Gotham City, high atop the Anton First Tower, Robin and the Huntress are discussing Batman's finer points. Well, at least the Huntress is. And she wonders why Batman isn't there to say all these nice and wonderful things to her to her face. Before Robin can do any backpedaling on what was said about the Huntress, they hear a massive explosion. The duo can see a giant fireball erupting from the city streets below. Robin never thought he'd be so thankful for something to break up the conversation. He's just hoping there's no loss of life during the explosion. The trigger triplets, meanwhile, are making off with the microchips and headed out of the warehouse as the explosion hits. They're met by some armed guards at the end of one of the corridors, and the trigger triplets take them out right and might quick. Meanwhile, Alfred radios Robin as the emergency band reports are lighting up in Gotham City, the explosion on Midtown Bypass in Gotham. Alfred says that Master Bruce will be out of town for some time and is afraid that Robin will be on his own. But Robin replies he's not exactly working solo right now. Once on the ground, Robin and Huntress can see the entire city of Gotham is in gridlock because the bridge has been blown to smithereens. They're going to have to trade the Redbird for some walking shoes. There's no way they're going to get that car to the end of the bridge. As they begin to survey the ground, Robin hears gunshots off in the distance. They know that the EMS teams are on their way to the bridge, and he and the Huntress turn their attentions to the gunfire. The trigger triplets have also brought horses along with them since the city's in gridlock and they leap into the streets on their horses and head out of town with their loot. Robin and Hunter swing down to the streets and find some of the GCPD officers on horses of their own. They commandeer their steeds and take off to where the gunshots were heard. The trigger triplets have quite a bit of distance between themselves and the Huntress and Robin and manage to tie a few ropes between a few trees and by the time Robin and Huntress to get to where the trees are, whammo, wouldn't you know it, they get clotheslined right off their horses, allowing the trigger triplets to laugh at their ingenuity and get away into the darkness. Another part of Gotham City, the county sheriff's office shotgun Smith is sitting at his desk going over traffic reports with his lieutenant Cece since the bridges have been blown to smithereens. When all of a sudden, Pow Wow Smith and Nighthawk arrive in their office. They say they are tracking two fugitives and believe these yahoos are passing through these parts. Part 3. The Wrong Riders Just like any good western, it's not a real western until a fight breaks out in a saloon. It's the trigger triplets versus the banditos. Chairs be flying, throwing bodies across, hurling the bar, tables being overturned when a shotgun goes off. It's Tanya Triplet. She says they don't even have the cash in hand and they're already acting like it's Saturday night in Stupidville. She tells everyone to cool it, get their heads screwed on straight. They're meeting with the buyers this evening. Outside of the quaint western town, well, it's really not a western town, as Huntress tells Robin that back in the day, promoters called this traction Gotham Gulch. It was a popular tourist town for a little while when she was a kid. It was closed before Bonanza was canceled. Bonanza, Robin says. Huntress tries to explain. Haas, Little Joe, the Ponderosa? Never saw it, he replies. She could tell this conversation isn't going anywhere, and she better stay on task at hand. In the cover of darkness, Robin and Huntress sneak into the one of the barns and to assess this situation and see how many men are holding shotguns or what are the various weapons they might have to deal with. Once inside, they see that the barn is full of horses. Upon further examination, the Huntress points out to one of the saddles and sees two T's on it. It's the Trigger Trends. Now they know who they're dealing with. 
And just like right out of a spaghetti western, our heroes turn around to find two six-shooters pointed right at them. But it's lucky that our heroes just aren't ordinary heroes. They're wearing masks. Oh, they might be wearing tights too, but they can kick all the western ass. Of course, some of them do get some of their shotguns to go off. Robin and Huntress are able to disarm them, but not before more are called to their location. More gunfire, more horses, causing Robin and Huntress to leap through the barn rafters to get outside of the barn. Some quick batarang action from Robin cuts down a few bales of hay from atop of one of the bandits, and whammo, wouldn't you know it, the bandits are out cold. Meanwhile, the buyers have arrived to pay for the silicon chips that the trigger triplets have stolen. Back in the barn, Robin is tending to sweet victory when he hears more guns are cocked and loaded behind him. Luckily for him, it's one of his favorite pals, Shotgun Smith. Not really. Smith can't stand the boy half the time. With Shotgun Smith, as Lieutenant CC, Pow Wow, and Nighthawk, they introduce themselves to Huntress, and the newly formed team puts all their pieces together of what they've each encountered over the story so far. Powell says they should probably keep the introduction short for the moment, Sheriff. Robin agrees and says the sun will be coming up soon, and the rest of them have surely heard the shots by now, and the cavalry won't arrive in time. They're going to have to make a stand and take on the trigger triplets and the banditos down by themselves. To which Robin says he has an idea that's something he saw in a movie once. And there we are, back at the beginning of our story. The bad boys on one side, the good guys on the other. The good guys all dressed in ponchos and trench coats. Shotgun Smith's Lieutenant Cece says she feels mighty silly dressed up in his poncho, to which Nighthawk replies the kid's plan may just work. Robin says to wait till they make their move. This plan isn't going to work if we all play it too early. So now with everything you know from every Western movie, the music, the whistle, the tumbleweeds, the brush rolling through the streets, gritted teeth with toothpicks, Sweat beating down the sides of people's faces. The cool breeze right before it's all about to happen. And then Robin yells, Now! The good guys raise their ponchos and trench coats to reveal a mirror on their chest. And from the rising sun behind the back of the triplets of the banditos, they're now blinded by the sun rays over their backs. The Battle of Gotham Gulch has started. Like any good villain in a spaghetti western, Tanya knows when she's lost a fight. She's in a mad dash to head out of town. Tad and Tom waste no second to chase after their sister. The buyers have fled in their limousine and are making off with the money they were going to get for selling those silicone chips. Tanya, Tom, and Tad are at the wrong end of the barrel of a gun. A shotgun. It's Shotgun Smith. And just like that, the Battle of Gotham Gulch is over. The Trigger Trends and the Banditos have been captured and arrested and taken into police custody. But not before Tanya makes a shocking revelation that her name is Paige Willingham. And do you really think that she was related to these two morons? All she needed was some gun muscle, a dye job for her hair, and a sad story. And she knew these two sapsuckers were all hers. Cece, shotgun Smith's lieutenant, turns around and says, The boy and that woman are gone. To which shotgun replies, They worked the night shift. Smugly, Cece smiles and says, You know, I never got to say thanks. Shotgun stops her right there in her tracks and says, If you say any variation of who was that masked man, I'll reconsider your application for a detective. Cece smiles and says, Sorry, Shotgun. High atop their steeds, Robin the Boy Wonder and the Huntress look off into the sunrise. And Robin says, It looks like our work here is done, Helena. Helena says, That was a cute trick that you borrowed from one of the movies. Fistful of dollars, right? Nope, Robin says. Back to the Future 3. I saw it when I was a kid. She knows he's just saying that to make her feel old. 
They stood together against the outlaws and the road agents and the bandits and the grifters that swept in off the Badlands like a dark storm. They stood for what was right and decent and just. They were the law. The law west of Gotham. The end, partners. All right, so there was our synopsis and the overview, so you got to hear what it was, or maybe through some fancy uh, footwork of mine, I'll re-edit this to, to make it sound a little <laughs> more cohesive. But uh, the front cover to this, it looks like it is one of those, like you said, pulp covers that you would have had way back in the day that you would have found on the newsstand. And uh, Lauren, or Laurel Bleachman, if I'm saying the name correctly did the front cover to this. I think this is a really cool cover and mm-hmm. it, it really evokes that time period. And ironic enough, it's very Drake in color scheme and the Browns. And <laughs> <laughs> I just pulled that out of my butt right there. I even like the trade dress at the top. It's got the old oh, yeah. classic DC comics, uh, pulp heroes, you know, logo up there. The comics code authority is back up on top of the book. So what'd you think of this, uh, cover to the book? I love it. It, you know, it's, it's in retrospect, I love it a lot. I, like I said, when I first saw it and I knew, you know, DC was doing these thematic annuals again, I was like, oh, okay, not a huge Western fan. And, and actually I had kind of the same reaction you did. I didn't know if this was going to be an in-continuity tale or if this was going to be a sort of an Elseworlds annual. And so I was like, yeah, but, but Chuck Dixon was writing it. And I was like, okay, I'm, you know, a Robin completist and, and I'm <laughs> going to buy this. And so I was, I was equally as surprised when it turned out to be fully in continuity and it turned out to be a, a you know, really good Chuck Dixon story. So now in retrospect, I've grown to really love the cover. And then I think the cover artist does such a good job of positioning the, the point of view because mm-hmm. you have the, you know, Robin with his cape, you know, to the side as like a gunslinger. And the person he's facing off against, we're just right up against that person's gun and hand. And it's such a good perspective. And it really does, like you said, it, it really evokes those dime store novels. But I don't know. It's such a it's such a full commitment to the bit that I really love it. Mm-hmm. And I was even looking at some of the other ones that came around at uh, this time in the Batman annual. The super detective is what it's listing it as, and Batman's saving a woman in a white or a white a red dress type of a thing. Oh uh, yeah, from some guys with some knives, and then there's this Chinese uh, dragon of the new year behind it. I'm like, what in the world? So now I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole, uh, <laughs> going, well, maybe I'm going to check a couple, <laughs> a couple of these out just because of reading this. I wasn't really. I was more surprised as I read it of how in continuity this actually was so i'm really kind of kicking myself back in the day for not having read this because i think this would have paired really nicely because of the the annuals kind of were really fluid at this time they usually interrupted whatever story was going on so you couldn't read this as the next issue was you know 145 or whatever the issue count was for robin and mm-hmm. read this but as as an overall like 500 foot view above dc it really let you know like they mentioned the clench 2 yeah uh, was in this and chronologically in our podcast we just finished up contagion on the last mm-hmm. episode so that was when i read that i was like holy crap so we're we're just past legacy and that time frame, we're not quite to no man's land yet. And uh, if I remember it correctly, cataclysm hasn't happened at this moment either. But we're, I believe we're knocking on the doorsteps yeah. 
of of that event. The other thing with this that I quickly noticed as we were, I was starting to read the book. I was like, those two cowboys look a little familiar. Why do I know those two guys? Those two gentlemen are the Trigger twins, Tad mm-hmm. and Tom, and their last appearance was in Batman 669, if I remember correctly. And they make reference to, you know, once they get back to Gotham City or whatever, is hoping to not run into Batman. So I think these two guys have the rare distinction of never having crossed paths with actually Bruce Wayne, Batman. The only Batman they've ever come across, I believe, is Jean-Paul Valley. So once that little nugget was dropped, I was like, oh, holy crap, this this should have definitely been right in my wheelhouse. And then <laughs> seeing Shotgun Smith and the, oh, yeah. the Huntress early on. So I just kind of want to go through, because this is broken up in three parts. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's no surprise with Chuck Dixon always starting off with action and seeing this battle at the OK Corral getting ready to start. So trying to figure out like, where in the world are we? What's going on? You quickly realize that. But seeing all these players there, what did you think of how how this all started off? And then getting... Because the other, the other cool thing is Robin doesn't appear for quite a long time until like the part of the second act. So you go through this whole first chapter other than the first and second page. You don't see Robin at all. So what did you think of the opening and the setup that Dixon was doing as he was slowly starting to put this story in place for you? I really loved it. Uh, one of the things, and, and you nailed it, one of the things I love about Dixon's entire Batman era is he, you know, he's action-oriented. He understands... These are comic books and characters important, but character can be revealed through conflict. So, you know, there's got to be some, some sort of conflict building here. And I love even, I I think actually, I love the first page, I think really needs attention drawn to it. Oh yeah. Because there's a, there's a chapter one, swift guns, swift justice. And there's a little bit of like, what would be the opening of a dime store Western novel. Mm -hmm. But the way Barreto draws, Eduardo Barreto's the pencil, the way he draws Tim Drake, and then the way Lee Lofridge colors the background, like you know immediately, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, this is going to be like a you know showdown at the OK Corral, or like this is you know Tombstone. And so I love that we open with all of our good guys sort of facing all of the bad guys, and Dixon doesn't shortchange the aesthetics. Like you know, like a, a woman comes out of one of the saloons and you know starts playing a, you know <laughs> sort of a, a western beat, and everybody's standing there and they're like. Wait for it, wait for it, and you know it's building, you know it's building, you know it's building, and then you cut away. And it is it is a brilliant way to open the book. It mm-hmm. draws you in. It feels very pulp novel to open on the sort of crux point of action and then cut back to see how we got here. I just I really love it. It's one of the things I loved about when I when I pulled the annual out again, when I knew we were gonna be talking about it. It's one of the things I had remembered quite vividly was that it opened in this way. And I just love, too, that we get the cast of characters sort of spelled out right away. We're like, hey, Shotgun Smith is there, and the, why is the Huntress there? And, you know, and, you, and you're like, well, who are these other two guys in, in cowboy hats? I don't know who they are. And so there's already also just a little bit of a mystery. Because if you just open on Tim Drake, Robin, and the Trigger Twins, I'm not going to feel much danger. Because one of the, the defining traits of the Trigger Twins is they're not the brightest bulbs, right? Like they're, they're right. really dumb. 
And so I'm like, oh, Tim's going to outsmart them. No big deal. But when you open like this and you're like, oh, this is a an old-fashioned showdown and they're outnumbered, now I'm a little bit worried. So mm-hmm. I loved it. What was your reaction to it, especially since you were reading it for the first time rather recently? Well, and I, th- I thought the same thing. I'm like, well, they only lasted one issue for Jean-Paul. So <laughs> going up against Jean-Paul is not saying much, but they're really kind of klutzes too. So I was like, why did Dixon choose these two? Other than, okay, you had familiarity writing them once before. But then as the story progresses and seeing that, oh, hey, surprise, we're not twins, we're triplets. You have a sister. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know. <laughs> so seeing that, oh, they're, can these both be so bumbling idiots that the alpha male is now a, quote, alpha female, that the sister is the one that's really going to be the brains behind the issue. So you're like, all right. So now they're going to be the hired guns for the sister and go through this adventure. So once that started going through and really seeing that she has no problem taking the first shot and taking people out Mm -hmm. and, you know, rescuing her brothers, so to speak, you start going, all right. So when you go, you know, flip back a couple pages to the beginning, you're like, all right, now the stakes are up a little bit because this is the, what's the best way to say it? Is there you come across the unknown element for Tim has yeah. has no idea who she is and probably has very little idea who the twins are, but has known well they're not at the top of Batman's Batman's list. Yeah, she has a real um, a nice new element to their story because she's got the same quick draw ability, mm-hmm. and so there's that same danger. But she's really smart and really well organized and really ruthless. And you're like, oh, okay, this is the this is the adult version of the Trigger Twins. Like this is the the real threat version of them. And there, you know, Tim doesn't know that. I, I like that you mentioned that that Tim doesn't know that that's coming. So where normally he could outsmart them really quickly, you know, she's that sort of wild card in it. And and that we even get. I mean, this is such great work by Barreto and and Dixon. You know, we even get an old-fashioned chain gang release. You know, like <laughs> yeah. they're out in the sun. I mean, you know, these the the two cops might as well be the guys from Smokey and the Bandit. Like one of them might as well be Jackie Gleason, and they're out in the sun. You know, and they're they're breaking rocks, and she pulls up, and they're like, "Oh, hey, pretty lady." I mean, it's just it's right out of every western, but it's just done so well. And then even the reveal that she's their sister is funny because they start hitting on her. They're like, hey, yeah. thanks for, for freeing us. And, you know, what, why don't we have some fun? And she's like, back off, dude. I'm your sister. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the hand goes right on the knee and like, hey, yeah. party lady. And the other thing is Dixon's use for the words that he's writing are very, you know, Saturday morning. My, my grandfather watched the, you know, Saturday morning spaghetti westerns mm-hmm. and having interviewed Dixon saying that he would, you know, he had young kids, so he would rent a hotel for a couple of days so he can write in private and not be <laughs> disturbed or whatever. <laughs> and he had said that he would have a TV on the background sometimes for ideas or for whatever. So you got to think, was he watching an episode of Gunsmoke or, yeah. or Bonanza or, you know, or something like that? Cause even just the way that everybody is talking in this, like Dixon is still framing it as, Yes, this is in continuity, but even somebody like the Huntress later on is really into that, lack of a better word, cowboy speak. And Tim, mm-hmm. Tim is the only one playing the straight man. Like, what did you just say? Or you know, and the things like, uh, I don't know what that movie is. I don't know what that TV show is. <laughs> 
you could replace Tim with Jonah Hex, and oh. you replace all the cars with horses, and this works exactly the same. Yes. And the other thing is, with this being a little bit bigger, Dixon is able to introduce two new characters in Nighthawk and Powwow Smith, which I think was a really funny name. But the, uh, I want to say DEA or is he FBI? He's a marshal. Yeah, Marshall, U.S. Yeah, marshal. U.S. marshal. So as he's tracking down, you know, the chain gang that you were just talking about, and you know, he's rattling off all these stats and everything like that. And it says, wow, you... How can you tell all that? He's like, uh, from the Rangers report that, you know. That, that, yeah. <laughs> so I even thought that uh, these two characters, Dixon gives them three or four pages to kind of flush them out, too, that they are also, mm-hmm. they're on the trail way ahead before Robin even gets involved into the story. I think just Dixon does a really masterful job of this. What do you think of those two characters in particular? Well, I was particularly excited about them because... Powell Smith is from Detective Comics number one. Yeah. Yeah. So he, I was like, oh, Dixon is really going deep bench. Like this is, this is really cool. Like he's, you know, he's pulling back from the old days. And then, um, you know, Nighthawk's first appearance was Western Comics number five from mm-hmm. 1948. So I loved it because he's like, well, if I'm going to have, you know, he needed two more bodies, right? It couldn't just be Tim and the Huntress and Shotgun Smith. And, and Shotgun's partner, they needed like two more people to make it seem a bit more even, or they needed some more bodies. And I love Dixon thinking, you know, there's a, there was a great Western character in Detective Comics number one, and then who would be sort of the Batman of the West? And Nighthawk, I mean, you know, right. basically is, is a Bat character on a horse, which is really cool. So I loved it. I loved their inclusion. And then I really like the swerve the writing takes because, like you said, Powell Smith is is like kind of on the ground, like looking at at the trail, and Nighthawk even slides right into the trope, right where he's like, you know, well, well, you know, what are you tracking? What are you seeing? And like you said, Powell Smith's like, oh, well, they ran away in this kind of car, and they had this, and he's like, you can tell that from the gravel. He's like, no, dude, I have a report. Like I have a, a Rangers <laughs> report. And then there's another little moment that flips where Powell Smith is like. Hey, I got a question for you, Desperado. He's like, what's with the sneakers? Because like Nighthawk has yeah. like Air Jordans on. And he's like, I just don't want anybody to think I'm a truck driver. And so there's this really fun little moment where Barretto and, and Dixon are saying like, okay, we're leaning into the Old West, but we're not going to be silly about it. We're going to point out some of the funny stuff about it that, you know, it is still 1997 and these characters are from an Old West trope, but we're going to put them in a, a little bit more of a modern setting. And I just thought that was such a smart choice. I It gave me two more characters to like, two more characters to want to learn more about, like you said. And it just balances out the, the issue, especially because, as you pointed out, like there's a real absence of Tim Drake in this entire section. So we need somebody to hook into. Mm-hmm. Well, and like you were talking about just the scenery and the yellows and oranges and the sunset, that mm-hmm. that quickly turns back to them going to I think it's Powell that says, you know, they're they're gonna go they're off to some place to, you know, do whatever it is they're gonna do. And that is of course gonna be Gotham City. So as bright and colorful as the West is, we are quickly back to the dark, dank, dingy Gotham City, but having these Western archetypes run around it, it is a little bit of a like a dichotomy or, you know, in and of itself, seeing two cowboys running around Gotham City with now a hotter cowgirl running around <laughs> into this. And uh, if uh, Shag was here, he, we would probably hear phrases like, she's hot, or yeah. can I get her phone number? So uh, Brodo also does a, a really 
well, job <laughs> in in drawing her to be the eye candy of the pulp comics of the day. It's yes. not and it's not done like, okay, we need to be reminded this is a nineties comic book. It's done in a way where you're like, this is a pulp story. This is actually kind of right on par and she's she's drawn as such where I'm like, okay, is at this point right here is where I was in hook line and sinker for the story. Not because of of the art be quiet shag. <laughs> <laughs> but just because of like you said, they're going all in for it. Like they're going to call out the things that they need to do. Say, hey, this is ninety-seven, but still, this is working in the time frame. And her idea of instead of robbing a bank, they're going to rob like the the microchip industry, you know, Silicon mm-hmm. Valley, so to speak. And that's going to get them their millions. And the two brothers are just right along with it. And now. Instead of and now I'm hearing Bon Jovi in the background, the steel <laughs> the steel horses that they ride, you know, instead there of ha- instead of having I'm going to be really cheesy throughout this. So instead of riding the horses, they got a biker gang as their backup. So Dixon is just playing like fast and loose is the wrong like he's not it's slow and loose like he's yeah he's really swimming in this in the the deep end of this pool and doing a a very clever job at it so what do you think of just the now the the biker gang being added in is the story still working for you at at this point yeah and i it's it really is and i think an abrupt change as it is to go from the west to go from powell smith and nighthawk to and this isn't just Gotham. This is Anton First's Gotham. Yes. This is Batman eighty nine. This is to- I mean, there's even that tower in the background when they first cut to Gotham. Yeah, that is most famous from Batman eighty nine and, and shows up a lot when people are trying to refer to that aesthetic. And then, like you said, the color palette's all dark blues and blacks, you know, and, and it everything changes. So the art's doing a lot of the heavy lifting of of changing mood. But I really loved it, and, and in particular. I'm all in on uh, Tomahawk Triplet. I'm all in on their sister because, yes, she's drawn you know really provocatively, you know, as you know part of a pulp aesthetic. But she is fully in control. There's no point where you oh, think, right. you know, oh, she's dressed this way for any other reason than this is a prop for her. Mm-hmm. Like she's like, oh, one of the other we- like I've got my two guns, but I've got another weapon too. Like I- she weaponizes her sexuality. In a really cool way, like she is in full control throughout this whole book, and she does it to catch the cops off guard. You know, when she frees her brothers, she does it to catch her brother, quote unquote, brothers off guard, and then she does it with the biker gang. And I, I really love that that move through because when the biker gang comes in, as much as she is in control of the situation, that's a powder keg. And she even kind of lets you know. She's like, okay, I need you the to her, to her two brothers. She's like, I need you guys to hang back and basically shut up. Mm-hmm. Like, let me let me talk. Let me run this. And it's clear that, you know, this biker gang is teaming up with them. But even that's maybe not the, you know, it's, a, it's an uneasy piece. Like, there's a little danger there, too. And I love that because it's like, oh, there's just powder kegs all over, right? There are landmines all over this book. The villains are facing some, the heroes are going to face some, and it's, you know, and she's got this great plan that is reminiscent of the Old West, but instead is, you know, updated for 1997. I I think, and I don't know if you, tell me what you think about this. You said you think that Dixon's kind of swimming in the genre, which is cool. I think it's a good way to put it. 
I just think he's having a blast too. Like I can sense oh, yeah. the smile on his face. Like do you do you feel like this is weirdly a very joyous issue? Oh, I think I definitely think so. And I think this is right up his wheelhouse too of of the things that he probably liked from his youth and just I mean that's the comics that he would have been reading growing up would have been right into this of your of your westerns and your mm-hmm. crime drama type stuff. So I think he's just swimming in the childhood of his youth in this while still writing in the superhero uh, medium of, of the time frame that he is writing. in, so just his, his usage of words or the, the specific words he's using and making the characters sound like, even though like we keep saying, this is a 97 in continuity story. The characters are still talking just a little bit different to go with that, overall pulp comic theme so yeah i definitely think this is a very joyful issue for dixon to do yeah and i'm loving i I'm, i really want to give another big shout out to eduardo barreto he is not my favorite artist i and, wanted and to growing... say that yeah because you mentioned that uh before we started recording yeah and growing up uh, he was definitely not an artist i loved and i know exactly why and it's totally not fair but I was a huge Teen Titans fan. And you go from George Perez, who I think is the greatest artist of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, I mean, in any medium, I, he's my favorite artist ever. And then, you know, he leaves and you get Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. And you're like, oh, praise okay. Yes, praise be his name. <laughs> you go from like one head on Mount Rushmore to the next. Mm-hmm. And then Jose Luis Garcia Lopez leaves. And Eduardo Barreto has the, the impossible job right. of coming in and filling those shoes. And I remember being palpably disappointed, like as a as a younger you know collector, with like what is going on with the art. And I knew it was solid, like it was good, solid draftsmanship. But he you know he wasn't Perez or JLGL, mm-hmm. and it just um, I think I said the initials wrong. But anyway, he wasn't Garcia Lopez, <laughs> right. and he wasn't. Uh, I, all of a sudden, it hit me. I'm like, I think I got that wrong. He wasn't Perez or Garcia Lopez, and I you know I held that against him. And that's primarily the work I know him from. So to see him in this setting, I'm like, oh, okay, he's a natural street level character artist. Like he was just miscast. And so yeah. they figured out that he's a really good street level artist. And I know he did the Shadow book at one point at DC, mm-hmm. and he did some other street level books. And I, now I'm really tempted to go back and read those because I love his work in this issue. I mean, he takes us from effectively an episode of Bonanza mm-hmm. to an episode of Sons of Anarchy in like <laughs> right. 15 pages and it's seamless. It's beautiful. Well, And the other thing that I was just marveling at is sometimes in the annuals, they're the, throw, they're the throwaway issue. Yes. You're not going to put your... I mean, the Chucks on it is, is a really good thing, but you're like, all right, Dixon's writing it, but who's the throwaway artist they are going to get it? Because all the primary artists are still... All right, we got a month reprieve. Let's let's get ahead an issue or two or something like that. So, mm-hmm. where's the new talent showcase coming in? And yeah. <laughs> this is not that issue, and it no. would be in sixty four pages. And some some books, I'm sure you've come across some. As you start going deeper into the book, you're like, all right, now the art's getting tired. There is not another pencilist on this book. Where okay, they had to bring in somebody else to finish pencils and mm-hmm. the faces like. Everybody's face is on model. Even even the some where you know it's a, the camera's pulled back a little bit. You're not getting a lot of detail. It's still there. And as far as the buildings 
are concerned in the cars and when the biker gang sets the charges up to blow the building up. I mean, he does a fantastic job with that once we are brought into Robin and Huntress that the art is solid from the front page to the back page of this book. And sometimes, I think that's another why sometimes the annuals, I always kind of dismiss those of like, I just, I'm not that captivated by the art. Unfortunately, sometimes we read with our eyes first and then words sure. second. So if you're not, if you're not pulled in by the art, great art can make a bad story seem better than it is, but bad oh, art yeah. with great writing, you could have Dickinson writing a, a comic book and if <laughs> you've got, uh, we won't bash any of their creators, but if you got somebody that dra- draws a lot of pouches on, <laughs> on, on belts <laughs> doing art, you know, I don't know, but I, I took, I took that to a bad place, but And all to say, uh, this issue, again, not only when you go down the rabbit hole of the other books from this time, but this was somebody I wouldn't even put on Mount Rushmore 5.0 that Mm -hmm. I'm looking back at it going, wow, are we looking at an underrated artist? Because like you said, he was having to fall behind the footsteps of giants and was like, well, automatically you already got three strikes against you. Yeah. Well, and no one, I mean, nobody could fill those shoes. So, you know, as, again, as a kid, I held that against him. And then in reading this, it really is phenomenal. And and the thing that, you know, you were so right, annuals were usually dumping grounds. And, and you know, that's actually, even today, you kind of see that, like you said, the new talent showcase piece of it. So I think one of the reasons this annual has always stuck out to me is because it felt like, a normal issue in the Robin series, a really good one, Mm -hmm. but it felt like it didn't stick out for being low quality or, you know, it didn't stick out for being, Oh, I'm never going to read this again. It was, you know, it was such a surprising turn. And then I love that the Huntress is coming in here. And, and so I have a, I have a particular background with her that I'll talk about in a second, but I'm just curious, like, what are your feelings about Helena Bertinelli, this, this version of the Huntress? So, on our last episode from Chronologically when we recorded, this is going to be much later, but if you go back to 111, when we were talking in Contagion, a beat that the three of us had always felt that they have to constantly keep doing with the Huntress is telling her, telling us, the reader, Batman does not like her because of X. Yeah. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't be teaming up with her. And that's even, Dixon brings that in here when they're flying through the city and Robin and Tim are kind of Robin and Tim, geez. <laughs> Helena and Tim <laughs> are kind of arguing back and forth where she's like, Where's your mentor? The clench two has has been here. And then as they hear the explosion and they're going off, Tim is radioing with Alfred, says, Oh, something to the effect of, Well, Master Bruce isn't around. It's dangerous for you to be out there by yourself. And Tim's like, no, I'm not really by myself. And even Alfred has that is that voice for us, like I don't know. You probably yeah. shouldn't. So I feel like, and that's the funny thing, like being a Tim Drake fan, he is paired up with the Huntress a lot through Cry mm-hmm. of the Huntress and like multiple issues, even in the Robin series. But here's another moment where we're like, oh yeah, that's right. I'm not supposed to like her. And I feel bad going, I think she's a cool character, but that voice in the back of my head goes, oh, but I'm not supposed to like her. Yeah. That's interesting. Did you read the Huntress series? Yes. The, the, okay. Yes. So uh, I read that book. I bought that book off the racks. So post crisis, the original Huntress had been Helena Wayne and right. the, you know the Earth Two daughter of Batman and Catwoman. So when the new Huntress book came out, I think it was probably eighty seven or eighty eight mm. after Crisis. Yep. 
I loved that book. It was dark. People forget it was Joe Statton was the artist and Joey Cavalieri was the writers. Oh, right. And they're kind of older school, like 80s, 70s creators. So when you look at just the creative team, it's like, oh, okay, whatever. And then, But you, when you read that book, it's really, really dark. And it's actually really good. So I loved her. I loved her character. And actually, I was really angry in my comic collecting history when the bat books took that swerve with her of like, Oh, she's mentally unstable. Yeah. You know, she's the crazy woman of the bat books. And even as a young reader, I was like, no, uh, uh-uh, I'm not down with this. Like one that completely contradicts two years of her own series. And then two, that's a trope. Even at the time that was like, yeah, we're, we're, we don't need this. Like we don't need the, the Sharon Stone of, you know, the Bat Universe. Like, we don't really need this this character. That's a good analogy as far as what, they, what they're making her appear to be. Yeah, it felt very 90s. It felt very, that, you know, whole sort of basic instinct run of types of movies. You know, she was the provocative, unstable female, you know, character who was somewhat dangerous. So even though it's a little pedantic, I really loved when she started folding into Tim's books because Tim is such a grounded and calm mm-hmm. and like fair character that he approached her differently. And he was like, no, actually, there's a lot of good here. And I think she can do a lot of good. And maybe if we just don't approach her as total disciplinarian jerks coming at her like from this really patriarchal place, maybe <laughs> we could salvage, you know. And so, you know, in retrospect, it's a little pedantic because he's like 15 and she's an adult. But I, I didn't care because at least it was a sign of, you know, the road to her becoming a more viable character. And so I liked when she popped up in Tim's book. And so I was excited when she was in this issue because Dixon goes to a familiar place where she's just immediately yelling at him mm-hmm. as sort of the proxy for Batman. But instead of, you know, shooing her away or instead of doing what the readers did, like you were saying, even that little voice in the back of your head, instead of saying, oh, I'm not supposed to like her or my my you know, my mentor figure doesn't like her, so I'm going to write her off. This is what separates Tim from, from I think, other characters. He's like, no, I'm still my own man. You know, like, I follow Bruce, and I learn from Bruce, and, and he is the senior partner. But in this case, I know Bruce is wrong, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have Helena with me. And I, I liked that inclusion. I liked, as, as Dixon went on, he softened that, that feel of her as the crazy character. Mm-hmm. And then Rucka and Burchett in that Hunter's Cry for Blood mini in, like, 2001... Um, they are not, uh, yeah, yeah, it is Cry for Blood, sorry, yeah, yeah. the Batman Huntress mini. They finally completely discard it and they re, you know, they completely reestablish the character, which is great. So I was happy to see her show up in this because this was another little brick on the sort of road to her redemption. Yeah. And also with, with Tim knowing, I know I'm not supposed to be working with her or maybe not supposed to. Batman is uneasy with her being in Gotham. But unfortunately, every time Helena is in Gotham, Bruce is nowhere to be found. Yeah. And it, Tim is still a very young Robin at this point. Like, he could take care of the city, but uh, he feels a little more comfortable having that extra person at his side. And I just got to say, page 26 with them swinging over the city is just yeah. a beautiful, beautiful piece of art with the city down below them and just seeing it just fall into infinity right there. Just I looked at this picture for a while with, with the inserts of Alfred and the way Barreto and a couple panels will break the uh, panel wall, especially when the bridge is blowing up on 20, what is that, 24, where her foot is down from the panel 
on the uh, previous page where it looks like she's kind of has one foot below on the bridge. I think I always like that panel breakage type stuff, but yeah, I just wanted to point that piece of art out there was just a, a very gorgeous piece of art. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, I actually think the more we're diving into this issue, the more I think Beretta was uh, ahead of his time. Like mm-hmm. I think if he were an artist now, his command of structure and his, you know, command of anatomy and faces and acting and storytelling, I think he'd be considered like a preeminent artist right now. Oh yeah. There, and there's very few, I mean, if we really wanted to be nitpicky, we could probably find something, but nobody looks out of proportion, even when like the camera, it may be a little low on 28. I think I'm on Mm -hmm. where the quote unquote sister is riding on the horse on the uh, second panel and we're down just a little bit lower. She, it's not like, wow, that leg looks really awkward. And he's even drawn the animals very well. It's one thing for artists sometimes to be able to pull off drawing humans consistently. But when you start throwing dogs and cats and horses and whatever else you want, a dinosaur in the bat cave, things look a little wonky. His horses look like real Real horses, even the horses in the background behind her, I think, look really strong. And even in the bottom panel on 28, where you just see Robin's arms and the hunter swinging in with the yellow panel, they Mm -hmm. look really good there. Now, the people are drawn just more like rough sketches to kind of show a little more depth there. But again, that's was something I really appreciated, too, in his art. Yeah, me too. I mean, it, what's you know, my friends who are who were artists. I think it's there's like a saying in art. It's it's horses, hands, and faces mm-hmm. are the hardest things to draw, right? Like it's like those those are the three, and he's just nailed all of them. <laughs> I was like, wow, man, Barreto's three for three in this. This is great, and I love the even the honestly even the trick of the robbery in this book is so clever that I'm smiling as we're talking about mm-hmm. it. You know, the the trigger triplets. They blow up a piece of the freeway to just gridlock the entire city and to shut everything down to cover their robbery up so that the cops won't get to them in time. But the entire city is gridlocked. So we're like, well, how are they going to get out? Well, they're the trigger triplets. So they just jump on horses (laughs) and they ride out. And I love that Robin and Huntress get in and she's like, oh, it's a Wild West bank robbery. Like, what is going on here? (laughs) And they give chase and it's just a fun – I mean, this would be an amazing movie, right? Like, this is a fun set piece of them riding horses through Gotham, and then Huntress and, and Tim steal two police horses, which is great. And they go riding after them. And again, even though there's you know stakes here, and even though our heroes are in pursuit and could be in danger, this is a grinning all the way through moment. Because you're like, uh, oh, yeah, I am here for them riding through Gotham on horses, trying to track down these triplets. This is great. And hey, this could be an episode of Batman the Animated Series or oh, yeah. a J- JL uh, Unlimited episode uh, with the Huntress being there. But the moment that the Huntress and Robin get line tossed <laughs> off of the horses is something right out of the Spaghetti Western or something uh-huh. right out of Bonanza. Like that has happened where usually happens to the bad guys, but in this case, they literally couldn't see the forest for the trees. <laughs> <laughs> of of what was coming. So I thought that was clever in and of itself. And then we're quick, quickly introduced to Shotgun Smith. And I got to tell you, as a supporting character, this was one like I really, really wanted Shotgun Smith to really be a part of 
the Robin book. I wanted that to be his Commissioner Gordon, or if nothing else, be his Harvey Bullock. So it mm-hmm. started out strong. So once I realized Shotgun Smith was in this, I was grinning ear to ear because in the top tier in the Robin book of supporting characters, Shotgun Smith is is right up there for me. So I, he looks very cool, and especially like him wearing his hat sometimes looks a little hokey in the Robin book yeah. of like, all right, here's this seventies, you know, beat cop. But with this going on right now, he fits right at home, carrying a shotgun trench coat. Like he fits that outlaw bandit type of a character to a T. So what'd you think about shotgun Smith inclusion in this? Yeah, I was so excited. You know, I was in on like, I was in on Tim Drake from, first issue from Lonely Place of Dying and all the way through the minis and then into his ongoing. And I loved the addition of Shotgun Smith to his cast because, you know, like you said, Batman's got Commissioner Gordon who's supportive and, you know, the the relationship between Batman and the GCPD goes back and forth. But overall, usually Commissioner Gordon is supportive. And I love Shotgun Smith's like shut up kid attitude of like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't like your stupid costume. <laughs> I don't like your stupid mask. I'm, I'm going to put up with you right now because we're both punching the same people, but no, we're not buddies. And I always loved that about him. I like that irascible character. And, and you're right about the art. There are some artists who draw, and I, I will die on the hill that Tom Grummet is the definitive Tim Drake artist. I love him. Oh, that's I a, love his yep, yep, yep. work. Yeah, I'm, I'm, like, like, I'm not in any way disparaging Tom Grummet. He's amazing. But his shotgun Smith at times looked like the guy in the drunk tank in Mayberry RFD, right? Like it just like it just didn't it just didn't work as well. He wasn't so much imposing as like you thought he was just gonna, you know, rumble out and go to Floyd's to get a haircut. That's and hilarious. and so this shotgun smith, you're right, is like he's a he's a badass and he's you know, the hat looks cool. And I was really excited to see him again because, you know, through all of the bat crossovers in the Robin book kind of got pulled into we definitely lost at times we lost his supporting characters. Mm-hmm. You know, we lose Ives and we lose some of his buddies and Ari- Ariana or Adriana, his Ariana, girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We lose her at times, you know, so it was really nice for Dixon to do this callback. And then you're right. It fits so perfectly that if, you know, if we need another couple guns, you know, at the okay corral, then yeah, shotgun Smith works perfectly. And there's also a nice shorthand there. You know, he doesn't have to spend a lot of time introducing him because, oh, right. Longtime Robin readers know him and are just going to be happy he's there. So, yeah, I'm I'm all in. Like in a book that is, I'm already enjoying. I don't know how they're doing it, but Dixon and Beretto just keep the smiles coming. Like like these little bits of like, oh, I'm already in on this opening scene of violence. I'm in on the cutback. I'm in on the triplet. I'm in on the Huntress being here. And they're like, you know what? We're even going to throw Shotgun Smith in as the cherry on top. So yeah, they're they. I'm hooked. This is I'm remembering why. I love this issue so much, and I'm actually patting myself on the back for recommending it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, too, as social distancing as I can. There, there's, there, <laughs> I appreciate there's that. Pat, there's your pat on the back. <laughs> <laughs> so all this moves into the the third section, the wrong writers. And again, Dixon's opening couple little paragraphs here, again, are right out of one of those romance novels where you got the guy half shirtless carrying the woman across the threshold of the burning building, you know, (laughs) and all that stuff. And as we were going through this part of the book, I had not that I had forgotten it, but the opening of the book where like, Oh yeah, there was this gun 
battle the okay corral, so to speak. Like, how do they, how do we get to this moment? And what we find out is this was initially, I thought it was a, a TV set, but it was a, a closed down little attraction that the Huntress's family would take her to go to. We have a place here in Ohio called Sauter's Village where mm-hmm. you can go see people, you know, churn butter and you have got blacksmiths and those type of things. So this has been closed or run down, but the facade is still up for this. So it's an area of Gotham or just way outside of Gotham that Tim Tim isn't familiar with. So they've tracked the trio to this spot. And there's a little bit of exchange back here where she's referring to Bonanza and Tim's like, Bonanza? (laughs) (laughs) And she mentions the Ponderosa and all this stuff is just flying over Tim's head. Another one of my favorite panels is on page 40 where they're taking care of a couple of the guys that are inside the horse barn with Robin just swinging into that middle panel, throwing Mm -hmm. a couple batarangs. That is probably... And this is not disparaging to everything else he's done in the book, but that is one of his single best Tim Drake panels right there, I think, as far as the way his face look and how fluid his movement is and uh, the way even as small as Huntress is in the frame, she looks really good, too, Mm -hmm. and uh, how they're able to kind of piece this together where she is pointing out like, hey, they even monogrammed their saddles. You know, like (laughs) this is them. Again, one of those you know, 30-minute Bonanza TV shows where somebody goes, look, the stitching on the saddle, like, this is the only person Uh this could possibly be. (laughs) I mean, the only thing they could have done differently is caught them in in a cave so that they were the the hole-in-the-wall bandits or something. That would have been been hysterical. (laughs) But it's these little details that are really carrying the day because these are nameless, faceless, you know, henchmen, right? Right. Like, these are just, you know, we don't know who these guys are, and we know they're not going to defeat our heroes. But because of the Old West and pulp overlay, they do have a, a heightened sense of danger because they're sort of the proxy for the trigger triplets and, and for, for Paco and Benita from the biker gang. And, and so it's even, you know, even in small moments like this, which are just sort of moving the action along, you're so in on the Western theme that you know in Westerns, these are moments that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where a weird horse can kick him in the head or a bonk on the head and suddenly they wake up in chains. Or, you know, this is, like, I loved Wild Wild West. I loved that TV show. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the moment where Dr. Loveless opens the doors, you know, and has like a weird yep. well, ancient robot to kill them or something. And so, Or a giant spider. You know, or giant spider. Yeah, I was I was staying away from the giant spider. Sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> I, you you could actually probably hear the pause in my voice where I was like he has a and I was like don't say don't giant say spider. it but we'll leave it to Rob. Sorry. <laughs> there you go. So you know even this action is really is a little heightened and and I it's just it's they're doing such a good job of building to back to the opening scene and reminding you like you said it's been a while it's been you know fifty pages or something. And then when we hook back into it, we're like, oh, yeah, right. Like, this just got even better. This is where it all began. And at this point, if you're not all in at this point, you're crazy. Right. <laughs> but this is a moment that could really cinch it. And, and you know, and even the art, I mean, you know, when Benita from the Biker Gang comes out with her boom box, mm-hmm. you know, and is playing like, you know, you know, yep. like Western theme and, and they zero in on the triplets and, you know, she looks completely in control. You're just like, oh, OK, I'm, I'm good. I'm reset. I'm right back. Oh, yeah. And I really like that Dixon writes, like, 
he's of two minds sometimes, I think. He writes for the story, like, again, we've just recently chronologically had covered Contagion. In the Catwoman mm-hmm. book, Azriel and Robin almost take control of the Catwoman book, and she plays third fiddle in that book because Dixon is going, you know what, narratively, this is where the story needs to go. Yeah. But doesn't forget who the lead of the book is and still lets that character have the moment where it's not shotgun Smith. In this case, it is Robin that says, Hey, hang on. I saw something. I have this idea from a, from a movie I saw once to explains why they're wearing the, the ponchos and everything, which, which factors into the story later of when the book initially starts is like, at what point did they decide to wear the clothes that they're wearing? Like, how does this fit? narratively in and now we mm-hmm. are literally in this moment that Dixon doesn't forget, hey, Robin needs to be the one that has it. Or in some cases when people write Robin like, well, Robin's still a kid, so he's probably not smart enough to think about this. It's gonna be Nighthawk that has this idea or power or shotgun Smith. He lets Robin have that because why wouldn't Robin have this moment? So the moment like they're waiting for the sun to go or the sun to come up at the right precise time. And then they reveal that they have a reflective device underneath their cloaks that blinds them just for a moment. And that's what our heroes get the draw, so to speak on all of our cowboy thugs. If I thought that this book read fast in completion of it, this section I thought just moved very, very quick and by the time mm-hmm. I got done, I was like, oh, man, it's over. It's just the art is fantastic, even on page 49, when you have Robin firing batarangs and the batarang going to the boombox, and then all holy hell breaks out on the bottom of 49. Again, Beretto does such a wonderful job with the art on this page that I was just enthralled. Like you said, if you weren't enjoying it up to now, then I I, I don't know what you could possibly <laughs> want to read. But what so, so what do you think of the the end result for uh, Tim's idea? And did you did it clue on to you where he got that from before he says it? So, uh, you know, it's funny. I love that it is Tim's idea. I think you you hit on that that Dixon's not forgetting that this is a Robin annual. And when I suggested this annual, one of the reasons I did is because of this exact moment. In fact, I had forgotten how good the rest of the story was. This was the moment I was thinking about because it's Tim solving the problem with his brain. For me, that's always the difference in Robins. That's that's Tim Drake is the cerebral Robin. You know, he's not the acrobat that Dick is or the charmer that Dick is, and he's not the fighter that Damien is or the psycho that Jason is. <laughs> but you know, he's always going to outthink them. And I like that this little trick is Tim looking around going, okay, we're outnumbered, we're outgunned, what can we use around us? You know, he's kind of MacGyvering it. So I, I loved that. I think it was funny that they, you know, they went and grabbed the mirrors off of uh, whatever, like saloon walls or whatever, and they grabbed the ponchos and the and the trench coats. And it's a silly solution. It's not the most clever thing ever, but it fits perfectly in this issue because it's the old west so it's a pulp answer right. if he had if his answer was to pull a device out of his utility belt call forth flying i don't know Havelina or something like you know batman year 1 that's not going to be as as satisfying for us cuz we've been no we've been in this pulp world we need a pulp answer right. so the simplicity of it is i think the beauty of it and i love the fact 
that they come out and they say, okay, we're at a disadvantage. You know, Tim's side, they're like, we're at a disadvantage because the sun is in our eyes. And, you know, we're already at a disadvantage because we're going up against the, the best quick draw artists probably in the world. And so to have this turn a disadvantage into an advantage, I mean, that's the thesis for Tim Drake, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. awesome. So I loved it. You're right. It does wrap up pretty quickly. One of my favorite moments is when the Trigger sister sees the tide turning. Oh, yeah. And it's only a page of the tide turning. She doesn't even, she's not, it's not like she's waiting going, oh, wait, we can still take these guys. And she bolts Mm -hmm. for free like oh i'm out of here i'm leaving everybody behind me which cracks me up and then we get the reveal what what were your thoughts on the reveal of who she really is i i'm not surprised because i was waiting for that scooby-doo's the wrong way like the bank robbers been mrs gentry the whole time you know (laughs) that i was kind of waiting for that moment so it didn't surprise me and what better way to say that, you know, I don't want you hitting on me because this whole plan is going to go down the drain really fast. But mm-hmm. if I make you think you're, I'm your sister, A, you won't hit on me and we can get business done. So I thought the reveal of who she is being Paige Willingham, I thought was, was very clever. Yeah. And that she had dyed her hair and like, I'm really not your sister. <laughs> one of them is like it's tom is like so uh can we date then she's like no (laughs) not even (laughs) it is great i mean that in her even her affect because they're like these three never knew their moms and she's like did you really think related to these morons and they're like wait you aren't and she's like a sad story and a die job is all i needed to get you guys to do what i wanted Mm -hmm. and it's so great because you're like you've already known she was the smartest of the bunch and now you're like, oh, she's even smarter. Like, she just looked around and was like, I have a job I want to pull. I need stupid muscle. I'm going to go you know, buy a $5 bottle of hair dye, and I've got my whole plan in place. And it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I like her even more. In fact, I don't know that she ever appears again. No. And, I, and that's disappointing because I think she is, is far more interesting than her quote-unquote brothers. Yeah. According to DC fandom, uh, Paige Willingham, a.k.a. Tanya Trigger, this is her single appearance. And she doesn't even uh-huh. she doesn't even have a hyperlink to click on to read anymore. So what, what a wasted p- potential. That's the only bad yeah. mark I can say to Dixon, like, you didn't use her again. Like, that was a really interesting character that I I didn't see coming, but I expected to see. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. in this type of story, you expect, okay, here's how the pulp layout works in story. So where is that turn? Who Who is the person that they're not really saying that they are? Well, and I think what's interesting, too, because I, I – I, Dixon is known for recycling characters in a good way. Yes. You know, he's if he creates a character, and he clearly loves this character. I mean, he put way too much into her. <laughs> so I was surprised. I was like, oh, that's weird that she didn't show up again. But – and you'll know this better than I do, I think. Aren't we getting pretty close to the end of his run in the Bat books? I mean, if we're getting to, to Cataclysm, then No Man's Land isn't very far behind, and he's off the books by then. Yeah. Yeah, so I do wonder if, you know, in the back of his mind, he probably had some later plans for her. And then just ends up not being on the bat books for much longer. Yeah. And the <laughs> the funny little gag between Huntress and Robin of her calling out all these references that Tim doesn't get. And she asked, that was a pretty clever trick that you borrowed from the movies, Fistful of Dollars, right? And he says, nope. Back to the Future 3. I saw it, <laughs> I saw it when I was a kid. So I thought that was... <laughs> 
that was that was really funny and clever because I I could just close my eyes and I could see that moment, you know, where yeah. instead of a mirror, he's got the lid of a stove or something underneath of his uh, poncho that the you know, bolt uh, reflects off. When it's it's a cute little button to the issue too, right? Because he's been kind of prodding her for being so much older than him, mm-hmm. and that's a nice little reversal because usually she's like, you know, look, kid. I mean, she teaches kids his age, right? right. She's a teacher. And she's like, look, kid. And she's usually kind of rubbing his face in it. And it's nice for him to get that cheeky little moment of like, yeah, I'm not as old as you. Like, I'm talking <laughs> about a movie that you saw as an adult that I saw as a little boy. So I think it's just, it's a fun, it's playful. And then I, I, again, for me, it's one more brick on the road towards redeeming her character from some pretty bad decisions with her in the 90s. So yeah. I liked that too. I liked the end of it. But I mean, this was a fun issue. And. I said at the top of the show that I really am kicking myself now for not reading this a long time ago, but uh, maybe I wasn't supposed to read it until the 80th anniversary of Rob. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, this is one that is definitely going to go on my, I wouldn't call it the Robin Mount Rushmore story reread pile, nice. but this is going to be one that I'm going to pull out and go, oh, man, what was that book I read about the Western? Oh, Robin Annual 6. Mm-hmm. So I really had a blast reading this book and was one initially when you had said it, I was like, Oh, all right. You know, no, <laughs> no, we haven't covered it. And I don't know if I had planned on recovering it or covering. It. I probably would have, you know, got to it as we hit. All right. This is technically when the annual would have hit. And I would have probably begrudgingly covered it for the show, but I would have thought I would have probably had the same reaction I'm having now is like, wow, this was a lot of fun. And, mm-hmm. Being the Robin guy going, you didn't read this book, Rob? No, <laughs> no, I didn't. Definitely check this out. Yeah. I don't, I was trying to go through DC Universe while we were talking. I don't think it's on there, but um, I believe you could probably get it in the dollar bin pretty, oh, yeah. pretty cheap. Yeah, I have, I actually own, I think, three copies of it. Oh, nice. Because I've, I've found you know, I bought it off the racks when it came out, and then just over the years I've seen it in dollar bins, you know, in like really good, really good shape. And I've just picked it up because I'm like, oh, I love this story. And instead of going digging through my long boxes <laughs> to find it again, I'll just pay fifty cents, you know, or a dollar right now and, and reread it. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I'm glad. I'm, I'm really excited that you liked it as much as you did. I know um, you were very kind to invite me to, to join the show, and you were really nice to give me choice in what we read. And when I suggested this and you said you hadn't read it yet, I did have a moment of worry. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> like, like, this, like you said, like, I'm like, this is the Robin guy and he hasn't read this. I wonder if it's you know, a purposeful choice or you know, it's going to be one of those things where he's going to be like, oh, no, I did read this. I just had forgotten because it, it just fell out of my memory because it wasn't a great story or something. <laughs> and so I was really excited when we started recording and it was clear that you loved the issue too. And yeah, I, I just – it's funny – you always get those people always, you know, tweet out the, the like, you know, if you had to give per person one comic to illustrate something, what would it be? And this is kind of my one, my one Tim Drake comic. Like if somebody asked me, Hey, you know, if you had to you know summarize the entire Robin series in one issue, I kind of do come back to this and I'm like, I think this is a pretty perfect little, yeah. little encapsulation of that whole Chuck Dixon era. And it's really fun. It's really well drawn. And, and it's you know enjoyable, and you can just get in and out of it. It's not super continuity laden. It's, it's a really nice little bonk, and so I'm glad you liked it too, man. This is this has been a lot of fun getting to cover it and talk about it. Well, and I can correct myself by saying it is on DC Universe. So if you have DC oh, Universe, good. go under the comics tab, type in Robin Annual Six, and it appears there. So perfect. So if you 
aren't able to, especially now if you're listening to this show, depending on when it comes out, if we're still under quarantine, God, I hope not, because I think this is planned for a June release now. Oh, God. (laughs) But, (laughs) so if everybody heads to the comic shop because we've been under quarantine so Mm -hmm. long, and you're like, oh, man, all the ish copies of Robin annual number six are gone, you can go to the DC Universe and you can uh, read this. So I would imagine if it's on DC Universe, it's probably on Comixology as well. I would tend to tend to make that guess but yeah i would think so too yeah when those doors to comic book shops open again it's gonna be i swear like if they they could hold up angel love like one through four and i'd be like yes yes give it to me i'll pay top dollar (laughs) do you have all the copies of guy gardner warrior i will take all of them (laughs) (laughs) seriously i won't even care just just give me comics (laughs) you have seven copies of issue two fine I, i i just want them yeah, every variant of X Men One. Yeah, I already own them. Give me again, like give me a polybagged X Force One. I'm in, yeah. and and maybe some Secret Wars. Oh, why did I say that? Oh, that's there right, you your show. So before I let you go, uh, why don't you tell the people out there about your show, where they can find you, and maybe what you guys have uh, coming up on a future release. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. So I'm on the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, and you can find me on Twitter at Sean42AZ. Uh, We have some great shows. We have Secret Wars and Beyond, where we cover every issue of every Marvel Secret Wars miniseries. We covered the beautiful gem that is Volume 1 that everybody loves because they read it when they were 10. We covered the, um, I don't even know how to describe it, maybe gold-plated poop that is Volume (laughs) 2. Uh, which is the one of the worst things ever written, but the shows are fun. Our coverage of it is fun. We slowly descend into madness mm. as we try to find some glimmer of, of quality in Secret Wars 2. And then we're now at Secret Wars 3 by Jonathan Hickman and Isad Ribic from 2015, which I actually think is the greatest crossover in Marvel history. And so we're, we're knee-deep in that, and that's a lot of fun, especially to be covering something a little bit more modern. We have a What If cast where we cover, we have a guest and whatever the guest issue they choose, we cover that issue of What If, which is a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, we have some great shows. It's a fun network. It, we tend to steer on the Marvel side, partially because there are so many great DC shows like this. You know, I honestly, this show, it, it cracks me up. Everybody loves a Drake. It was a great find for me because when I first got into podcasting, my like top three books I would want to talk about or characters were one of them was the Tim Drake Robbins series. And I was like, Oh, I, I really want to do a podcast about this. I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to look and see if anybody does it first. And I found your show <laughs> and I was like, Oh, sure. they're doing it already and they're doing it better. So I'm good. Like I'm totally good. So that's, that's awesome. I was glad you guys took that. Cause I was like, Oh, okay. Awesome. That's better than I was going to do. This is a lot of fun. Now I get to enjoy being a listener and this is great, which is the beauty of, of comic book podcasting. So yeah. So, but you know, if people like the episode, I'd love for them to check out our shows and then also just hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you thought about our talk about this annual. Yeah, this is, this has been a blast. And I, I've got to say, I have a little box off to the side of like returning guests. I want to have back on. <laughs> You're definitely on my list, sir. This was, oh, thanks, man. this was a lot of fun and just, just dude, just talking to you, forget everything that's going on outside of our, our walls in the universe. Hopefully you and your family are, are staying safe out there, but I want to hang out with you again, man. This was, this was a lot of fun. We need to bring you on a, uh, a proper episode of the show <laughs> and let you get into all the craziness that is Terrence and Ryan, because clearly they're the crazy ones and they're probably shaking their heads right now going, no, Rob, everybody knows it's always you. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I appreciate that, man. I would I would be on again in a second. This is fun. You know, you never know when you haven't you know recorded with somebody before. You never know how you're gonna sort of uh, you know connect. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, this was just like hanging out with a buddy for a couple hours. So I I appreciate it, man. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think this is where we're going to put a pin in it, folks, on a very fun Robin 80th anniversary show. Now, due to the way that I'm recording and banking these, I'm not sure exactly what the next incontinuity story is, but I believe we probably should be really close to Legacy, so that's really going to be fun if that is actually correct, or if it's like, Rob, Legacy was four months ago, so (laughs) I guess we'll find out. So I'm Rob, and on the behalf of our special guest, Sean Ross, you've been listening to the BatmanUniverse.net. But more importantly, you've been listening to Robin. Everyone loves a Drake comic podcast celebrating 80 years of the boy in red and black. We'll see you in a few weeks. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Robin. Everyone loves the Drake podcast. This has been brought to you by the BatmanUniverse.net. Tim Drake, Robin, and all Batman-related characters are under copyright of DC Comics. This podcast is solely for entertainment purposes, so no infringement is intended by this show. This show is not a good revenue stream. Actually, there's not a stream at all. All music and sound clips are under copyright by their respected copyright holders. So there should be no need to send the Penguins lawyers after us for ill-gotten gains because there are none. You can get a hold of the show a few different ways. We are on Twitter at ELTD Podcast. You can also email in at RobinELTDPodcast at Yahoo.com. Our Facebook page can be found at www.facebook.com slash everyone loves the Drake. And as always, you can message directly over at the BatmanUniverse.net. So email, tweet, or message us. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll read your comments or responses on the show. The show you're listening to can be found a few different ways through iTunes and Windows Media. Also, over at our host, TVU. Leave us a review on iTunes if you listen there. It'll help spread the word of the show. Make sure you head over to the BatmanUniverse.net, your home for all things Batman and Robin. Thanks for listening to the show and hearing why everyone loves the Drake. We'll see you in a few weeks. Take care. I'm the slickest they is, I'm the quickest they is Did I say I'm the slickest they is? So if you barking after, wrong tree we coming Don't be starting nothing, me and my partner gonna Test your chest, loveless Can't stand the heat to get out the wild, wild. Oh, oh, When I roll into the, the wild, 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 w